You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Episode 150, everyone. You know, Neil, I, I, before we get into it, I want to mention, I spoke with Katie Stevens of Make Crate, and, and we're going to insert a, a small segment that I did with her here into the podcast. But one of the things that I'm really excited about and really uh, encouraged by is what I see as, as efforts like hers that are about making STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, something that's sustainable throughout the year. You know, this week has been computer science education week, and Apple's done the hour of yeah. code kind of thing, and, and all kinds of people have been pushing their, their Raspberry Pi kits and their Arduino kits and things like that. But they, the, the difficulty that I have with those things is that they tend to be singular events that everyone forgets about right. after the week is over. And it's very important for me that, that you know, we understand where future engineers and future developers come from and, and encourage that. It was that's why it was so rewarding to talk with with uh, Katie Stevens about Make Crate. Yeah, it's cool. You know, this is something that Apple's been very invested in as well. You know, not just the Hour of Code, but uh, with Swift Playgrounds and um, you know, there's there's these apps and toys and games out now where you can use Swift to learn to code and program. You know, a robot to do stuff in your house and all that stuff is really cool um, and it's exciting. Um, I, I think that. You know, stuff like Swift Playgrounds obviously simplifies it in a way that makes it so that it's accessible to people. And then as you want to get into more um, enthusiast, hobbyist type stuff, a little more hands-on with the building aspect of, of the hardware, uh, MakeCrate is, is a good option for that kind of stuff as well. So I, I just I, – it's exciting and I think it's, it's good to – uh, get kids interested in this stuff and, and do it in a way that's very practical. You know, for myself, when when I was a kid, I, I sought out that kind of stuff. But when you're in school, a lot of times the math and, and the way they teach you the math is not very exciting. And so to have it done in a way that makes it, uh, it gives it more purpose and is less about solving for the abstract and more about creating something and getting a sense of accomplishment afterwards rather than just solving for X um, I think is a great way to teach kids the value of software and math and programming and those sorts of things. I'd like to take a moment now to, to introduce you to someone very special. This is Katie Stevens, founder of MakeCrate. K- Katie, can you just explain for our listeners what MakeCrate is? Sure. It is a uh, subscription for electronics and coding. It's designed to teach electronics and coding to kids about age 12 and up utilizing the Arduino platform. So that's the simple answer in a box. We have uh, subscription offerings as well as a few non-subscription kits at this point too. There's a starter kit and then there are other add-on kits that make use of parts from the starter kit. Is that right? That's exactly right. Right. So in the uh, initial box that you get from us, you'll receive your Arduino and uh, a bunch of pieces to get you going, as well as um, three really simple projects. Uh, We have a tremendous focus on developing the instructions that come with our kits. They are literally step-by-step. There's not a single component that you'd add into your kit that doesn't have written as well as illustrated instructions to tell you how to do that. Um, And then in subsequent months, you'll reuse some of those parts and get new sensors, new actuators to uh, create something something fun. So some sample projects in later months are things like uh, building a nightlight or an alarm for your room or a digital clock, those sorts of things. It's really relevant that we're talking about this right now. We're in the middle of Computer Science Education Week. Apple is doing the Hour of Code initiative where they're hosting children in stores to to spend an hour going through code.org lessons. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Apple's been very supportive all year with Swift Playgrounds, where they've been trying to make it accessible for children to learn Swift programming and also learn how to use Swift to control robots and devices like that. There are all sorts of accessories that are compatible with, with Swift Playgrounds. So it's very topical that we're talking about this now. One of the things that I think a lot about is where future engineers come from. And I've seen a lot of STEM initiatives that come off to a great start, but it, it seems like sometimes these initiatives are, are most strongly focused during this one week out of the year or one day out of the year, and then the rest of the year they sort of lie fallow. What, what are you doing, or how does MakeCrate keep this this sort of enthusiasm going? I think that the subscription model lends itself really nicely to the sort of thing that you're talking about in that you've got something brand new coming in every month. The projects are designed to get progressively more difficult. So uh, you'll utilize skills that you learned before, uh, both from the, the building and the coding perspective, and then add on new things. Um, additionally, one of the things that I've worked really hard on is to make sure that while the projects we send and that we prescribe each month in terms of providing directions and code downloads and all of that um, are are really important to the process, trying to encourage uh, it's generally kids that use these kits, although we do have a fair number of, of adults that have subscribed as well, but that they are uh, trying to explore beyond that. And so along with the content that you receive in your box every month, you can go online and take a look at the page for each kit has uh, links to suggested challenge problems. And those tend to fall either into building or coding or some combination thereof. So it might be to add a, um, you know, we've walked you through the process of how to use an LCD and a, and a real-time clock sensor to build a digital clock, but you've learned previously how to wire a buzzer. So now see if you can both add that buzzer and go back and add uh, alarm functionality to your code. So, and that's something that we're not specifically giving instruction on, uh, but kind of guiding towards that so that kids can uh, reuse the skills that they've learned before and continue to grow and find more interesting challenges with these projects. But let me ask, because I, I don't know yet, do the projects explain the function of the components or the function of the blocks of code so that it's it's not just following the instructions to assemble something, it's it's really gaining knowledge about how these things go together and why they work? Yes, that is our intention. And so that is content that you have to go and, and seek out. It doesn't come straight out of the box, although uh, there are uh, in the instruction booklets that we send, there'll be a description of any new parts that you've received and a brief overview of, of how they work. Um, but then we also have uh, some videos on our blog that walk through uh, especially the fundamental pieces like uh, LEDs and resistors and buzzers, how all of those function. Um, we walk very specifically in tutorials on uh, how to do the coding. Some of the code that we're utilizing, especially for the um, the more advanced projects, can be really, really tricky. And so uh, sometimes instead of tackling the entire coding project, we will uh, break it down into, into pieces and talk about, you know, what a particular function might be doing and how you might change it in order to get different behavior. Um, but there is a lot of, of content structured around all of this to take it beyond just, you know, putting 
this part in this hole and hoping that you got it in the right place and it and it works. Yeah, years ago I used to have the uh, the Radio Shack 50 in 1 kit which was a bunch of uh, discrete analog components with a couple of, of digital components as well. Mm-hmm. And they all had spring terminals and the spring terminals were numbered. And that was the way that that project worked was you'd, you'd find a project you wanted to build like the, uh, the, the led bulb with a uh, CDS sensor to trigger it, to close mm-hmm. the circuit, to switch it on. And th- the first half of the book was all point to point wiring this spring terminal number to this spring terminal number with no indication of why you were doing it or what these ports did. And the second part of the book was, here's the schematic drawing, go ahead and figure out how to wire it. But again, no no real communication about what a diode does and why you'd use one. Mm-hmm. And we've had that, that say, I make that same kind of observation with products like Snap Circuits, where Snap Circuits says, go ahead and put these components in this order, and it'll do something. And that's great, but there's there's no explanation for why you're combining them the way you are. Right. Right. And that kind of thing without uh, human interaction can be tricky. It's really hard to do that well and to make sure that the people who are engaging with these parts are uh, are looking at that kind of information. So, you know, I don't always know that a user uh, is seeking that out, but it's we're certainly working really hard to provide it. Um, so every t- every month, the the project has a specific page on our on our website that introduces it um you know there's a little video that shows you what it should look like in the end but it links to the specific content that's going to tell you you know uh here's how you write a for loop or you know here's what's happening inside that led that's making it light up um you know here's what the inside of your breadboard looks like so you can start to understand why uh, when you connect things in the wrong rows, it doesn't work, those sorts of, of things. Because I, you know, I, I'm a former classroom teacher. And so understanding the why of it, along with, you know, seeing, seeing it come together and actually turn on is really important to me. Definitely, you know, there's, there's the reward of the achievable task, right? I made this thing light up, mm-hmm. which is, is great that that helps keep the enthusiasm there and keeps work, you know, keeps us working towards the next project. But Without that understanding of why it works and why we got the result we did, it, it just—it's always been hard for me to to get myself and my my daughter to the next step. You know, why is this important? And what else can we do with it? Right. So we end up building these discrete projects that stand alone, but we haven't really learned anything from it. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree. And uh, you know, keep working towards uh, doing a better and better job at exactly that kind of of learning. Um, so that these things don't sit on a shelf in between months, but kids are trying to experiment and see what else they can, they can make it do. I've taken, uh, these projects out to various events, uh, maker fairs and, um, educational events in, in my hometown and, um, always, always I'll, you know, I'll have a basic project that, probably 60, 70% of kids that come by will put it together and get really excited that it worked and go on. But every single time there's at least two or three kids that look at it and say, well, that's exciting, but what else can I do? And that is like, that's the highlight of my day, you know, to get to interact with a child who is trying to figure out why did that all together? How can I add a second LED? You know, where do I put it to make it work and talking through with them, um, you know, the logic behind why it has to go in a particular place is always, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that keeps me really excited about doing what I'm doing. 
Can I ask, how long have you been working on Make Crate? Uh, I started it in March of 2016, so it's still fairly new. We've been we started shipping our first boxes in um, October of 2016, so just a little over a year for shipments now. And what would you say has been the the biggest thing you've learned from shipping Make Crate? Oh my goodness, that list could go on and on and on. Um, you know, I I have always had a fairly entrepreneurial. Spirit. Spirit, I think, but no real um, training in that regard. So the whole, uh, you know, just getting a business up and running and, and figuring out how to do that has been uh, tremendously uh, rewarding in terms of how much I've learned. It's been a struggle too. I think that's probably true for most new businesses. But um, in terms of the product, first of all, I should probably say that before I started this, uh, I had never used an Arduino. Um, I, you know, had an idea of what it was because I live in a home with three other very serious makers. And so we've always had them around. Um, but I had never, never done that and, um, was inspired to it, uh, because my, my family is very lucky in that we have the resources to, uh, one, have those things in our home to have adults around that can help kids figure it out. And three, my children go to school where some of that is available as well. So a big part of the motivation for me was, uh, you know, making this accessible to kids who don't have the same resources, whether it be people or, or components. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the biggest things I've learned is how all of this stuff works. Um, and, uh, iterating through on not only how it works, but on how to best teach it to other people. You know, the, our first several sets of directions were, um, worked for my mind, but when I put them in front of, uh, 11 year olds, they said, I, I, I can't do this and, you know, would kind of throw up their hands. So iterating through all of that and trying to figure out the best balance between being really prescriptive in the directions, uh, and, and also allowing for exploration has been, um, a big part of the, the learning as well. What would be the hardest challenge you've had to overcome? Uh, from a business perspective, it would be um, understanding that marketing is vital, <laughs> which should be obvious, I suppose. But I, I have a very much, um, uh, if you build it, they will come perspective on that sometimes. Like I know, based on the thousands of interactions I've had with children over the last year that I have made this really great thing. Um, but in terms of communicating that to the to people that are going to sell it, that has been a, a struggle for me. It does not come naturally. So really learning to navigate all of that and make those connections would be my biggest challenge. Yeah, I would I would say that marketing and sales is every bit as important as the engineering and, and product. That um, there are a lot of engineers out there that I've met that have, have had this uh, feeling like you that, you know, if they make the very best product, it will sell itself. And it doesn't always work out that way. Correct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um uh, coming to a place where I was uh, open-minded about having to learn this new skill set was was a a struggle, and I think I'm I'm finally there and starting to put all of those pieces together. So, I'm also a very independent person. So, um, you know, I've done this um, essentially on my own for the last year, and um, so asking for help is always a a, <laughs> a new skill I have to learn. <laughs> 
So where should people go to to get their starter kit? Where should people go to start looking at MakeCrate? Uh, we are at makecrate.club uh, online, and there's uh, a lot of information there about uh, the projects, and uh, you can actually read some of the blog content that talks about how the components work without having a, a membership or anything there. You can also, we have a YouTube channel um, for MakeCrate, and uh, there's some uh, intro videos there for a lot of the projects so you can see what they look like. Um, and again, some of the, some videos about, about the components as well. So those would be two great, great places to get a start looking for us. So you've been shipping for more or less about a year and change. What does Make Crate look like three years from now? What, what do you think the next thing for you is? I, I'm hoping that the next thing for me is to make this available to classroom teachers uh, a little bit more effectively and um, efficiently. I think that it's the kind of content that classroom teachers are clamoring for. Um, I know that uh, there's a lot of the sales cycles for, for public schools in particular can be really, really long. And so committing to that um, will take a lot of work and also kind of refining, you know, exactly what materials need to go to classroom teachers and how to organize that will take some work to um, make it the most cost effective for them and for my business. Um, but that is really the goal is to make sure that teachers who want to have this kind of stuff in their classroom can can access it. Um, and then, uh, you know, right now, the projects that we're doing are, are really specific to learning the fundamentals of electronics and, and coding. But there are a lot of really, really neat sensors out there that have, uh, you know, particularly scientific applications, um, you know, force and acceleration and uh, those kinds of things. So I would love uh, in a few years to really start thinking about how to utilize the technology to uh, reinforce lessons that p teachers might be making uh, outside of the limited focus of electronics and coding. So, you know, building a physics lab that utilizes this kind of stuff. So that's, that's really my, my dream is to, um, you know, see it on that broader platform. So just to, to restate it. So I've got it clear in my head. There are projects that are focused today on, on parents of children, say 11 and up. Correct. There's the, the stretch, the, the goal for the future is to get it into the hands of teachers in classrooms for about that same kind of age range. And there the focus is still electronics and, and coding and the fundamentals of, of assembling circuits and, and making them, them do new and interesting things. But beyond that, it's about using electronics to support other lessons, like, like, as you say, physics. Exactly. Exactly. I think that those kinds of efficiencies in the, in the classroom are, are incredibly valuable to teachers to be able to, you know, impart some genuine hands-on experience of a physical concept while also reinforcing, uh, how to write code at the same time would be amazing. So, uh, there's, there's a lot of work involved in, in getting those lessons just right. But, um, the research and design and, and product development is my absolute favorite part of all of this. So I get really excited when I think about having those opportunities. Definitely. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I'm 
glad to help you get the word out and, and talk about these kinds of projects and products. Uh, what else should we know? Uh, you should know that we have a, uh, a sale going on right now. So <laughs> we have the, uh, marketing. Yes, Very exactly. <laughs> exactly. So the code holiday makers gets uh, 25% off of everything on our site right now. So, uh, if you're looking for, for holiday gifts, uh, you know, this, the, we have some one-off kits, we have an alarm kit and a game kit and a music kit that, uh, are great for under the tree options. But if you want to be that person who gives the gift that keeps on giving, you can look at some of our subscription options as well. And, um, you know, give something that looks super fun to unwrap as well as uh, teaches somebody something new. Fantastic. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining me. Um, that's makecrate.club. Correct. And, uh, and, I encourage all of our listeners to go and check it out. I, uh, I'm excited. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's really fun to, to get to talk about this. It's been, uh, it's been a real labor of, of love. And, uh, you know, I just love knowing that folks out there are learning something, something new. We're going to uh, get some hands-on experience, and we may talk about it in future episodes. We might even ask you back to tell us more about it. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you. You know, the, the thing that I always have an issue with, because I, I used to use these Radio Shack kits when I was a kid, and they never really taught you what components were or why you'd use them. Right. They just said, assemble these things in this order. Yeah. And th it was so difficult to really get a good grasp on, on why circuits work the way they do. And there are even apps in the App Store that do interesting things like teach you about uh, voltage and amperage and resistors. Um, by making you try and connect circuits on the touchscreen and place the components in so that you don't blow up the light bulb at the end kind mm -hmm, of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm blanking on the name of that app, but uh, if I can think of it, I'll put it in the show notes. Because even simple things like that are an easy way for really young kids to to figure out how things go together, how circuits work, and what a resistor does. The uh, it, it's It's just... <laughs> so important that we not just assemble things, but that we understand why they work the way they do when we assemble them. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, these, these kinds of things affect people, whether they're, they're new to engineering or have a long and accomplished history of engineering, that uh, if you assemble something in the wrong order, unexpected results happen. And, and you know, I'm thinking about uh, the latest debacle that Apple's had with software updates. Yeah. It's not easy. <laughs> How was that for a segue? That's a good one. <laughs> so a Apple has had a tough time of it. Would you agree? This has not been a good fall for Apple. Software-wise, I think their hardware is is firing on all cylinders right now. I, I would agree. There are very few reports of any kind of quality issues with the hardware. But the, um, the software updates, for example, the high Siri update that we covered last week or the rushed update for iOS 11.2. Yeah, you know, we talked about this last week, and and you and I were pretty riled up about the 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 root issue on Mac OS. And for those who haven't listened or aren't familiar with what happened, basically, long story short, a very easy way of getting root access to a Mac was discovered with just clicking a few times, um, and that's very very bad in terms of security. It's a pretty embarrassing about security one hundred and one, about as basic as you're going to get kind of stuff. And and I should mention that that Apple has. Uh, made 
a lot of improvements in security for Mac OS over the years, including SIP, which is a, a way of protecting the system yeah. from modification. And so what SIP does is it says that the core system directories and libraries are protected and not allowed to be modified unless you turn SIP off. Right. And you cannot turn SIP off unless you reboot the computer into recovery mode. So even if you had root access, you could not do damage to the core system. You could damage the user's files, and you could, if you wanted to, uh, change things in user local as a uh, as a subfolder. But for the most part, the system integrity would be preserved. So as bad as having root wide open without a password is, and it is bad, uh, it's not as bad as it would be on other Unix systems like uh, a Linux or a BSD system, for example. Yeah. Uh, this And this was not something that, like, we don't know of any high-profile hacks or widespread issues that came out of this, but this was something that was, at least on the Mac side, was reported, you know, as far back as June or July um, in the Apple developer forums, and it just didn't get around. And then, so last Tuesday or whatever it was, it came out, Apple patched it a day later. Okay, moving on, right? And then (laughs) Saturday, I was out. um, I, I ran a race Saturday morning. I get back to my place. And uh, my wife left her phone behind because she has a, a Apple Watch Series 3 with GPS. So we ran the race. She didn't need her phone. She's like, I'm just going to leave this at home. Um, and her battery was down to like 40% on her phone from just laying around and didn't really understand why. And the phone just kept rebooting over and over and over and over and over and like couldn't even get anything done. Um, and I was completely out of touch. I had been disconnected. I hadn't looked at anything. And I get on my phone and I see that, up oh, there's a... December 2nd crash bug that's affecting a lot of iPhones and iPads. And so Apple realizing that there was some sort of an issue, a date issue, I don't even know why or how that would happen, was so, forced to push out iOS 11.2 in order to uh, fix the problem because apparently it was fixed in that release update. But of course, it wasn't quite ready for prime time. It wasn't fully baked yet. And so they pushed it out with, you know, with a notification saying, oh, Apple Pay Cash is available now, even though it wasn't available yet. So it's just like it was it was it was beyond embarrassing. It was stupid. So here's here's my understanding of the 11.2, the, the reason why Springboard crashed and what happened to, to force us to have this 11.2 update early. Mm-hmm. How, how many months are there in a year? There are 12. Are there? Because in iOS, there is a 13th month that is placed out of bounds. And and because the 13th month is out of bounds, it causes that crash. So what happened is iOS has a history of weird calendar things. Yeah. <laughs> whether it's it's daylight savings time mm-hmm. or uh, other odd calendar bugs that have just cropped up through the years. Right. Right? You, you remember these, right? Yeah. And I so that. so the um, the way that I, I my my rough understanding here is that engineers recognize that there are these problems and as a way of making it work and making it work quickly was to to push these things into a 13th month to to make them not happen during our regular course of 12 months and uh what could go wrong well springboard crashing first of all <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> what could possibly go wrong 
And so, so there we have you know, it. This happened. My wife is basically like, you fix it. Just hands me her phone. Like, I don't know what to do about this. So later that well, day. Yeah, why should she? Later that day, I got a text from a, a buddy of mine who uh, he's a manager at Best Buy. He's not, you know, he's a. He's not like the most tech savvy guy, but he's tech savvy enough to have, uh, you know, a bunch of devices, works at Best Buy, whatever, right? And he texts me and he says, I woke up this morning and the strangest thing happened. My f- my phone, my wife's phone, my iPad, her iPad, everything kept crashing over and over and over. And I couldn't get it to stop. I had to hard reset and plug them into iTunes on my computer to, to fix it. Because he didn't know what was going on. And so he went through this whole process of like restoring his stuff rather than updating to 11.2 because the problem was if, if, if it was bad enough, your phone or your iPad was crashing like every five seconds. You couldn't even get into settings and choose the – and it would it would continue to download in the background, but you wouldn't know because you'd go, okay, download the update and the springboard would crash. And it would like take a few tries to get it to work. And so – you know, it's one of these things where, uh, it, thankfully, it didn't it didn't affect my phone. My my phone worked fine, but um, it, it affected enough people, and it was just right on top of this this Mac issue where it was just like a no good, very bad week for Apple. So I wrote this editorial, which uh, upset a lot of readers uh, because I, I guess you can't say anything bad about Apple. And then me- you like upsetting our readers. <laughs> I don't enjoy. I know you by now. No, I, I don't. And people that listen to this podcast, uh, you know, I, I guess either you like me or you don't, whatever. Um, people that listen to this podcast know that you and I are not afraid to call out Apple if we think that they do a bad job. Um, people that read the website are a slightly different audience. A lot of them don't listen to this podcast, and they may not realize that that we are that way. Um, I mostly do straight news content on the website. Uh, I've been doing this job for eight and a half years. I don't really go out of my way to write editorials because, you know, who cares about my opinion on most stuff. But this was such an egregiously bad week for Apple that I decided to write an editorial just talking about how embarrassing it was. And and not just this week, but the, the fall. There have been so many problems. The the, the Apple Watch Wi-Fi LTE connectivity bug. Um, the, um, the A question mark uh, autocorrect bug uh, that spread like a virus and replaced the letter I. You know, I mentioned that one in the editorial that I wrote. And I, and I said that it was a, a public relations disaster. Um, and someone took issue with that saying, oh, that's not as bad as, as phones blowing up like Samsung. Of course it's not as bad as phones blowing up like Samsung. We're not, ta- we're not trying to equate two things here. What I'm saying is if you go on Twitter or you text message with somebody and then they can't even type the letter I, they can't even refer to themselves on the internet, which is all anybody ever does on the in internet. In the first person, yes. yeah. You can't even refer to yourself in the first person on the internet. It's not, of course, it's not as bad as burning your house down with your phone. Of course not. But it's constantly in your face reminding you that there's a bug in the phone software and that people need to update their phones and that Apple screwed up. Like, it's one thing to have a bug that kind of annoys you or whatever, but it's another thing to, like, be reading Twitter, to be reading text messages, to be on Facebook, to be wherever, and just constantly seeing this bug out there over and over and over and over. That is literally the definition of a public relations disaster because you can't escape it. It's a constant reminder that Apple screwed something up. And that's bad. I mean, you want to be looking good in the public. You want people to be happy with your your products. And so, you know, Apple talks a lot about customer satisfaction. They talk a lot about customers feeling a serious, having a feeling of joy from using their products. And there's nothing joyous about waking up on a Saturday, finding all your devices repeatedly crashing, and having to go and reset them on iTunes. Now, imagine 
that all the surprise and none of the delight. Right. Imagine that you don't know anything about technology. You're going to the Apple store. You're getting on a landline so you can call Apple to get this fixed. I mean, this is this is really, really bad. Now, maybe you weren't affected by this issue, or maybe you read Apple Insider and you know to go and install iOS 11.2 to fix it, and maybe you don't think it's that big of a deal, but you have to step away from your personal experience and your personal capabilities and understand that Apple is a mass market company that it sells tens of millions of devices every week. And they have a ton of people out there who like their devices because they're simple to use and they don't have issues like this. They don't have to worry about security issues. They don't have to worry about constant crashes. They don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And so, yes, Samsung is is in a league of their own when it comes to disasters. But I'm not setting the bar that low. I'm setting Apple at, at a higher standard that we hold them to because we love the company and because we love their products. And so that's why when something like this happens, it's very bad for Apple and they need to be called out for it. And that's exactly why I did it. Now, I want to comment on something. In, in sure. the past, in years past, you and I have had a great track record of suffering nearly every bug that, that Apple's come across. Right. Right. You know, I, I, you and I have complained at length about, you know, troubles with iOS, iOS 8 and keyboards. And This falls and high Sierra iMessage bug was the worst one because it went on for like two months for me and I yeah. wasn't getting messages. Right. Yeah. I did not encounter the Springboro crash. I, I didn't get it on my phone. I, I don't I know what causes it. I don't, don't know what this means. So the fix, if you didn't install iOS 11.2, which this is what makes it even more bizarre, right? The fix, if you were still on 11.1.2, was to go into settings and the notifications and disable notifications for every single app. Now, if your springboard is crashing every six seconds, <laughs> you, you can't. That's a that's a long process, especially if you have you know 200 some odd apps installed on your phone, as most people do. So yeah, and, or, and how or are you if you're us and you have 800 apps, so. and, and how are you supposed to know that if you just pick up your phone and it's not working? So so here's here's what I have been doing. Uh, I, from from the Mac App Store mm-hmm. on the Mac side of things, mm-hmm. there's an app that pu- Apple publishes called Apple Configurator Two, mm-hmm. and when it comes time to update an iOS device, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason. I've had iOS devices that have difficulty updating over the air. Connecting it to the computer and using Apple Configurator 2 instead of iTunes allows me to go ahead and manage the iOS device and update the iOS device and and set it into all of its uh, you know DFU modes and restore modes and all the kinds of things that I need to do to, to really successfully update and take care of an iOS device without messing around with whatever they've done to iTunes this week. Mm-hmm. So that, there's a tip. If, if you find that you need to connect to a computer and you're connecting to a Mac, try Apple Configurator 2 instead of iTunes. And the sky is not falling. Apple will be all right. They'll get through this. But they need to get their act together on this software because this fall has been very, very bad for Apple software um, across the board, all the platforms. Um, well, it's just not good. A, a question is, I mean, a question is, if they don't get their act together... How long can they continue to not get their act together before it actually does real damage? It's impossible to say. I I think that Apple's brand is bigger than any single product. It it is the most important aspect of the company. It is why people are willing to shell out a thousand plus dollars for an iPhone 10 because they're with that brand is an assumed level of quality. And as soon as you fall short of that experience, which 
Apple itself boasts about and goes out of their way to um, to emphasize, and rightfully so. Um, it might make consumers, you know, think twice about maybe spending a thousand dollars on that phone or two thousand dollars on that laptop or something like that. The the moment that you start to get frustrated with your device to the point that you're just like you just want to throw it out the window, um, that is not a good experience for customers. And you know, I, it, it breaks the romance. The honeymoon is right, over. Right. And and Apple, you know, they they have ninety nine plus percent customer satisfaction on a lot of their platforms. People are very happy with their products, but those numbers will start to come down if these types of issues continue. I don't think that these types of issues are going to continue. I think it was a combination of having having some trouble this fall with the iPhone 10 launch and focusing on that, um, and uh, a, a, some just some frankly just some bad luck. Um, I think that this will not continue. But you know, I've been thinking a lot back on on this year because we're coming to the end of 2017 and thinking about year-end content that we want to write. And one of the things I want to write is I don't think that Apple has ever before announced so many products that weren't coming out until next year, in in a year. And and it's an interesting change for the company. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I wonder where their focus is when they are struggling to get stuff out the door. Yeah, it's it's a tough question. Um and there are, as you say, a lot of products that have already been announced for next year. Yeah, we have a new um, Mac Pro coming next year. Um, yeah. We have new uh, uh, monitors from Apple that they're going to start making. They're going to get back into the display business. We Well, the, the ones they partnered with worked out so well. <laughs> we have the uh, AirPower charging mat coming next year. That's the third product. We have the um, AirPods charging case uh, coming Fourth. next year. Um, yeah. And we also have, because it was delayed, the HomePod is coming next year as well. Five products. Mm-hmm. I'm going to add to that list a potential Mac Mini. Well, they haven't announced that, but they say that it's an it's not. It, they, they referred to it or mentioned it, have alluded to it, but it's certainly not announced in the same class as the uh, the charging pad, for example. Well, just this week, they uh, made the mid-2011 model obsolete and... Uh, a lot of our commenters were, were were especially upset about that because in many people's view, um, so the, the last Mac Mini refresh came out in, in uh, 2014, so it's over three years old. And a lot of people saw that as a downgrade because they actually reduced the number of ports on it. So there are people saying, wait a minute, you made the 2011 model obsolete and it's better than the 2014 model? Like, how does this... The, the 2014 came in, I, I believe, uh, quad-core, and they didn't even offer that for the 2014 model. So... Um, yeah, the Mac Mini supposedly Apple says is an important product in their lineup, and they're and they're gonna continue to invest in it. Um, so maybe an update is coming next year, but I'm not holding my breath. Sure, you want to add to that that there is almost certainly going to be an iPad or iPad Pro refresh. Well, but but that doesn't count. I mean, op- new products are coming out every year. That doesn't. Are are there engineers working on something? Of course, yeah. Then it counts. Well, add to that. You've also but they come got out every year. The- that, that's. What what but made I'm, it? If we're talking, no, I'm talking, we're talking about, about pre-announcing the products. Amount, yes, we're talking about pre-announcing right. products, and I'm I'm focusing on uh, distributing engineering talent and attention. It's focus, right? Apple announced a bunch of stuff in 2017 that they couldn't ship in 2017. 
Yes, and if the focus is divided across all of these things, plus the things that are not announced but we can expect anyway, that's a really, really spread-thin kind of stretch, isn't it? Well, then you have the iMac Pro to throw into the mix as well. I mean, that's technically supposed to be coming out in 2017, although we'll see. We've only got a few months left in the year. We're we're running out of 2017. Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be like the Mac Pro. They ship it, you know, December 31st. They ship like six of them at at a quarter to midnight and then say, oh, we we met our deadline. But uh, well, speaking of meeting deadlines, I mean, it was it was my surprise that Amazon actually managed to ship their uh, Amazon Prime Video app <laughs> before the end of 2017. And we'll talk about that more later. <laughs> yeah, well, that has some similarities with pushing iOS 11.2 and uh, the High Sierra update out the door, where it comes with its own set of issues and bugs. You don't say. You don't say. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that. It's a strange situation for Apple to be in where they pre-announced a bunch of 2018 hardware. Um, Not to say unprecedented. The company's done it before. Um, The Apple Watch was announced in September 2014 before it launched in April 2015. But that's different because it was pre-announced so that developers had time to create apps for it. Uh, It was a new platform. HomePod, you could make the argument that that was kind of what they were going for, but not really. Um, that was less about developers and there's no real explanation for pre-announcing air power other than to say, oh, we're, we're invested in wireless charging. Um, and then even less reason to announce the Mac pro other than to say to pro users, Hey, we haven't forgotten about you. 2018, the year of catch up. Yeah. Yeah. So before we move on, I want to mention, I found the app that I was thinking of when we began. Um, it's called Light This Up, and it's by a company called Koo Apps, K-O-O-A-P-P-S. And I'll put it in the show notes, but it's uh, it's one that I think would be worth checking out if you're at all interested in puzzles and puzzle solving and electronics. It's pretty cool. cool. It's very approachable. Uh, good for kids. Cool. Good for adults. So there you go. You mentioned among all of the list of products that are forthcoming, so the AirPods. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about AirPods. AirPods are one of those things that I had uh, basement expectations for. I did not expect them. I did not expect to like them as much as I do. Um, And through a combination of events, um, including the fact that my publisher basically forced AirPods on me so that I would be familiar with the product. um, And also the fact that I somehow at some point lost my PowerBeats 3. I don't know what happened. Um, They've become my go-to for out-of-the-house headphones. Um, I wear them. Do you walk around wearing them in the middle of the day? I, mean, I don't leave the house. Do I Do I find you in the grocery store wearing AirPods? Not in the grocery store, um, but on the train, yes. Running, yes. Um, at the gym, yes. Yeah. I did have... Uh, I mentioned that I ran a race on Saturday. It was just a short uh, 5K. I did have one of my AirPods fall out during the race, and I had to do that awkward thing where, like, there's, like, a million people coming behind me, and I had to, like... So you were, like, scrambling on the <laughs> ground looking for your lost contact like, contact try not to have lens. people trip over Where's me. Where's the AirPod? Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, but it was my own fault that it fell out because it was cold out, and it was a morning race, so I was wearing gloves. And I do this thing where I'm still, I'm still paranoid about them falling out of my ears, even though they've never fallen out on their own. But I'll do this thing where I'll take a just my fingertip and just kind of gently push it back into my ear a little more tightly. But because I was wearing gloves, I don't really know. You can't feel where anything is. My hand kind of flipped up and knocked the stem and knocked the AirPod out. So it was my fault. I'm the one that knocked it out. But By trying to make it fit more snugly, right. 
you took yeah, it it's right like a out. nervous habit that I have where, you know, every four or five minutes, just take it just real quick. Just take a fingertip, just kind of push it down just to make sure it's really in my ear. Good. Some people bite their nails. You play with your ear. Yeah. All right. But they're a really successful product, right? I mean, they they shipped a huge amount in in this year, and it looks like they're going to ship as many as 26 to 28 million in the coming year. Yeah, it's um, a pretty big hit for them. And I mean, I see them everywhere. Um, that people are, are, love them. You know, you read you read the comments on that story that we wrote, and people are just they say it's the best product Apple's released in years, and. I can't really disagree with that. Uh, they're they're pretty good. They're great pocketable headphones. They work. Um, the connection has been rock solid for me. Um, I use them to exercise. I use them when I'm going around town. Um, I, I think that as far as all-purpose headphones go, they're they're pretty hard to beat. Yeah. You know, I, I think they look a little silly. I admit that. And especially on the few people that I do see in the grocery store wearing them. But as as you say, you know, you see them everywhere yeah. and they seem to be comfortable for most people. They seem to stay in for most people. And be- between the W1 chip and their battery life, they seem to do the job for most people. If you like them, enjoy them. That's what I say. Yeah. And and if they ship 28 million in 2018, I mean, that that's that's huge. That That could be Apple's third biggest product that they sell in terms of volume. Uh, you know, iPhone, obviously far and away, number one, iPad would be number two. They haven't announced watch numbers, but you know, even if they're selling 5 million a quarter on the watch, which would be a, a really good number. Uh, yeah. So what is, what is the cost of AirPods? $159. Okay. So 28 million units sold, uh, is, is 4 billion, 452 million. Yeah. Pretty good market. Now that's not the net. That's not your actual Obviously, profit. Yeah. But that's, but that's um, just what's collected in at the retail till. That's that's not a small number. And one of the interesting things about AirPods uh, that a lot of people don't appreciate is I, I don't know what the margins are on the product. I'm, I'm sure it's not bad, but um, Apple really came in with an aggressive price on AirPods before AirPods were announced. Completely wireless headphones that were the first ones to come to market. We're at like $250, $300. And even Apple's own Powerbeats 3 retail for 200 bucks. So to come in at 160 to with entirely new technology that, that was not widely used at the time um, and to really undercut all the competitors is a testament to Apple being smart about pricing with that product, but also to how far ahead of everybody else they are um, in wireless and miniaturization of technology. Well, they've always been good at miniaturization. You know, the first time that they shipped the iPhone earbuds with the microphone on yeah. it, they used a smaller process. The PCB and the soldering was at such a fine pitch that not every shop could do it. You had to find special manufacturers who could meet that fine pitch if you were going to use that microphone. I saw something about this a few months ago where a woman online was talking about she was looking for an Android watch. She wanted a round face watch. Um, and all the ones that were out there were these like big, like the Michael Kors one. They're like huge, chunky, basically male watches, which some. No, no, no. The the Huawei one is the good one for well, that. But that, that was the point was that if you want something small, if you're a woman who wants a smaller watch, Apple's 38 millimeter Apple watch 
is the only one that that really gets that small. Um, no, no, the the Huawei one for women is that size, right? But there aren't there isn't a huge market for it. Is my point? You correct? Apple is in a league of their own when it comes to miniaturization of technology. Nobody can make as good of an experience that small of a form factor. And so all pretty much all the Android watches you're going to find out there are these huge, chunky, big things that accommodate for their inability to make it small by having it designed bigger. So, uh, you know, it just goes back to that point of Apple is in a league of their own when it comes to miniaturization of technology. Well, Huawei did it. They reduced the size for a woman's watch nicely. And Motorola tried to reduce the uh, the 360 to make it fit that smaller size as well, although they didn't quite get as small as the, the Huawei did. But the problem was, and, and Motorola found this out, is that the market for Android Wear watches is is quite right. small. And so your your friend who's searching for an Android Wear watch for women really only has one option. It's that Huawei model because Motorola killed their program entirely. Well, it wasn't my friend. It was just a it was somebody who wrote something online. I, I didn't know that. Oh, person. we're all friends online. Facebook insists. Yeah, Come on. Absolutely. <laughs> LG has hinted that they're going to begin making OLED panels for Apple's iPhone 10. So this is a uh, a Korea Herald report that says that uh, LG is basically saying in a regulatory filing that they they haven't confirmed anything in detail, but it, it appears that they're going to be making the OLED panels. Um, you know, we had reports before that we discussed that said they wouldn't be able to actually do that in quantity until 2019, but. Uh, here we are. We know that Apple likes to have multiple suppliers for parts. They don't like to be constrained. What do you think about that? Do you think it seems plausible? Yeah, it's possible. They're not going to be able to create as much capacity as Samsung. Um, it might be, you know, it might help Apple's supply chain diversity a little bit, but in terms of consumers, it doesn't really mean anything because they're both going to have to meet the same standards that Apple has. So if you buy an iPhone 10 and it has an LG display, you won't even know. Right. And that's something that we watched when the iPhone 10 debuted was that a lot of people compared it with phones that had the LG panels in it. And there was a noticeable difference in quality, especially even trying to view them off axis. Yeah, Apple's not going to let that out of the factory that way. So if this comes to pass, it's good for Apple's bottom line, but it has no effect on consumers. There you go. What does the number A1862 mean to you? The aforementioned iMac Pro, which is supposed to be coming at some point, um, was given a model number through a regulatory filing in Europe. So we will see um, when it ships and what's going on. I'm, I'm very excited about this iMac Pro. Not that I could afford one, but I'm very excited because that maybe your publisher will push one on you. M- maybe I don't even have the de- <laughs> I don't even have the desk space for it. So um, I, I uh, am dying to know. What is up with this A10 processor? We talked about it in the podcast a few weeks ago, but leaked information from High Sierra suggests that this desktop is going to have a mobile processor in it. And I have theories as to why, but I don't really know. And, you know, like there's theories that it's like power management. It's like, what do you need power management for on a 27 inch desktop that's constantly plugged in? Like, this is. If you want to put the machine to sleep, and conserve energy and conserve wear and tear and heat on the components inside, but have it alive enough that it can respond to a Hey Siri command. Don't say that. <laughs> right? Uh, 
if and and also one of the other things that we saw in there was that it runs secure boot process instead of through the Intel processor and UEFI, it runs secure boot through the A10X. Which execution. all sounds like really great features for a MacBook Pro. It does not sound like something that needs to debut on a five thousand dollar desktop. Well, you debut it and then you roll it out to the rest. Maybe. And and if that's what it is, that's fine. That's pretty underwhelming. I'm hoping that there's more to it. Power management on a desktop, who cares? Well, remains to be seen. We will see. But Clearly, I'm, you know, you I, I think you would do that for the purpose of being able to roll it out easily later on. I, I agree with you that the focus isn't power management solely, but if that's one of the things that you can do, you do it to make it a more universal install across all of these yeah, things. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that 2018, if, if this rumor ends up being true, I think 2018, all of Apple's pro machines will have some sort of an A-series coprocessor in there handling certain stuff. My hope is that... This leads to being able to natively run iOS apps within macOS and kind of further bridging the gap between the two. Because you got to remember, the Mac App Store is not particularly great, and the iOS App Store is particularly great. And the ability to run iPad and iPhone apps on your Mac, um, while it may seem weird um, in some ways, would have a huge advantage because you instantly now have 2 million plus high-quality apps that are available in the iOS App Store now on your Mac and syncing with iCloud and everything else. So pretty exciting if that's where it but Especially if you you think about the apps that work with iCloud Drive mm-hmm, and files. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because that's one of the, the things is when you work with an iOS app, for the most part, your data lives within that iOS app unless you use the share sheet and then save it in files. And there are, you know, it's a subset of all of the apps on the App Store that can do that today. But once you can do that and interchange files and exchange files with other applications on the Mac, that becomes interesting. Well, if you start to go from the ground up, from the watch to the phone to the iPad to the Apple TV in terms of, you know, size of screen, um, you have a unified code base with those three platforms, watchOS, iOS, and tvOS. macOS is kind of an outlier. You, You can't have a... A single binary that will encompass iOS and macOS. And if we could get to that point where you buy and and we bridge the gaps between those app stores, imagine, you know, new Pixelmator Pro just came out for iOS, or or, I'm sorry, for Mac. Now imagine if... uh, Have you gotten that yet, by the way? No, I run the basic Pixelmator. I didn't see a lot of reason for Pro, but uh, Pixelmator does a really great app for iOS, um, and I use it on my iPad and my iPhone occasionally. And uh, imagine if I could spend $30, $50, whatever, and get that app for both platforms with one purchase. So we've had fat binaries for Mac in the past, when they were doing things like being PowerPC and Mac compatible at the time. On the other side of the fence, Microsoft, for a long time when they were pushing Windows Phone as a platform before deciding that it was no longer sustainable, um, they were pushing for single binaries that would work from Windows Phone to Surface to, to generic Windows 10 computers. Yeah, they had the right idea. They were just 10 years late. <laughs> you know, they finally figured out what they had to do just at a point where no one wanted to buy their phones anymore. So good luck with that. Apple has the advantage now of being the premier player on the phone market, and while the Mac is still niche overall in terms of its success, it has a devoted fan base. And allowing uh, iOS apps to run on the Mac, um, allowing people to have more familiar experience on the Mac, 
Um, and I'm not saying bring a touchscreen to the Mac. I'm just saying um, give the ability to have these apps or unify the code base in a way that you could have purchases that apply across both. There's still, with as much as they've done with continuity to bridge the gaps between the platforms, there's still a wide gap between them. Um, there's still a disconnect between the Mac and iOS. And I think the more that they can bridge that gap in terms of uh, files and apps being shared between the two, the better experience you'll have on both platforms as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that there's still some confusion between, uh, you know, you're talking about an app store that allowed you to unify purchases across all of the different platforms. I, I like it, but at the same time, I worry about what that does for developer income because there are still people out there charging for separate versions from iPhone to iPad. Well, that, but that's the thing—you don't have to. And you don't have to do that. Developers, so you still, create a confusion between what's the expected behavior. And well, you know, the market sorts it out. D- developers have the option. A- Apple already does this now. You can make unified iPad, iPhone, and Apple TV apps, right? Um, and you can have it appear on all platforms or. What a lot of developers did was they ported their stuff over to tvOS, and then they just added the word TV to the app, and it's a TV-only download. And now, I don't like that, and I'm more apt to buy um, if if uh, something is a universal app, but I would argue the opposite. I would say, maybe I'll pay $30 for a Mac app, but I probably won't pay $30 for an iPhone app. But if I pay $30 for the Mac app, and it comes with an iPhone app and a universal binary... You know, that might get people that say, I would never buy this for $30 on my phone, but I can get it on my Mac, and then now I have it on my phone as well. That might get more people to buy. Yeah. And and then you add on the confusion between in-app purchases and things that Apple has to do to fix that, by which I mean uh, in-app purchases from the version for the iPhone app don't convert over to in-app purchases from the iPad app when they're marketed separately like that, even if they're the same product. And further, when you're using a family account, and you try and do family accounts, then the app purchases don't work between family, within family members. There needs to be better options for app subscriptions and that sort of stuff, but that's that's more of a problem that developers need to sort out than Apple um, when you're talking about uh, different versions of apps. If they choose not to embrace the universal binary, then that's their business. Yeah, some of it is still on Apple's side, especially when it comes to family accounts. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that, but I think a lot of the problems you're talking about are self-created by developers who are trying to nickel and dime consumers too. Yes, there's a bit of both, mm-hmm. and I don't begrudge any developer trying to make a profit. No, hey, hey you got to make money. I, but I've long been a believer that people should pay more for software, and I think that you know, twenty dollars for an iPhone app. I think that fifteen dollars for uh, the the Mario game for iPhone was was. Great. I, I think it was totally worth $15, but I, I paid for fantastical. I'm very happy with it. A lot so. of, but a lot of consumers disagree. So uh, if you're listening and you won't pay $15 for a good app on your phone, you're a cheapskate. Well, especially when you've invested this much in having a good phone. Yeah, to I know. Anyway, uh, we, we've got a rumor and I'm a little skeptical. So help me out here and tell me if I'm being irrational about this or if my skepticism is well-placed. There's this concept that a 6.1-inch LCD phone next year would use a metal back, metal chassis. Uh, It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I was trying to think about it from a cost perspective. Does it make sense to reuse tooling they already have? Are they are? But a six point one inch size isn't size. They well, let me have. bring everybody up to speed. Does it make sense to, to what, what's going on? Yeah, here? let me bring everybody to speed. So the rumor is that we're going to get three new phones next year. Um, we had three new phones this year. We had the iPhone eight, 
iPhone 8 Plus and the iPhone 10. The iPhone 10 introduced a bunch of new technology, was a little bit harder to produce, came to market a couple months later. The belief is that by next year, um, Apple will have a lot of those issues resolved and the new primary flagship phone will be the iPhone 10. Um, that will be accompanied by a plus-sized version of it, uh, so-called iPhone 10 Plus. So basically think the iPhone 8 Plus, but with an edge-to-edge um, display for a larger form factor. So you're looking at like 6.5-inch screen, something something in, in that realm. And then for people that want bigger phones but don't want to spend a bunch of money on a big OLED screen... Uh, Apple is going to have something in between those two with a not completely edge to edge display because it won't be OLED. It'll be an LCD screen, but it'll ditch the home button, have the same face ID, swipe up to unlock kind of experience. Not as good of a screen, not as good a technology. Uh, it'll be the budget priced um, phone that's the sort of entry level for the the flagships, the high end. Um, and it'll it'll have an LCD screen. So the rumor came out this week that that phone is going to have a metal back. The reason that doesn't make any sense is because Apple switched to a glass back on the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 10. And the reason they switched to a glass back is so that they can enable wireless charging. So unless Apple has found some way to defy the laws of physics or is going to completely ditch wireless charging on this phone, which I don't know why they do it um, when it's currently on the iPhone 8, um, I don't, it, it, having a metal back on the phone doesn't make any sense to me. These things, they don't make any yeah. sense. I, I don't, I don't believe it. There's no reason for Apple to ditch, unless there's something about this phone that we're not understanding, which is certainly possible. Uh, I'm not sure that I understand the need for a 6.1 inch LCD phone, but, um, in between the two si- other sizes, I'm not sure I get it, but. Uh, budget price point. But is that using up? I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. More important. So things that we got in the iOS 11.2 update that we talked about a moment yeah. ago, we, we, we got 7.5 watt charging yep. for wireless yep. charging. We got Apple Pay cash eventually. We did. It came out, uh, started its rollout on Monday. Um, Tuesday came to all people. Apple Pay cash is uh, kind of Apple's competitor to um, uh, Square Cash and Venmo. But it's a little different in some ways, too. It's actually a card that is in your... It's a debit card that appears in your uh, Apple wallet. And you can use it to spend money uh, in addition to receiving money. So the way that Apple Pay Cash works is it is done through the Messages app. So it is an iMessage app. And you set it up by... um, uh, it wants you to use a debit card because the debit card transfers come with no fees. But you can use it with a credit card if you want and pay a 3% fee. And then you can send cash to friends just like you do with Venmo and whatever else. But rather than having it, like when you send it through Venmo, it's kind of like imprisoned in the app and you got to go and transfer it to your bank or whatever. You have to do the same thing with Apple, but they do something interesting. In the interim, before you transfer it to your bank, if you want to leave it there, it just sits on a card called Apple Pay Cash. And you could go to any store, essentially, that accepts Apple Pay NFC payments. And instead of using your credit card or debit card, you could use your Apple Pay cash card to spend the money that was transferred to you. Um, or you could transfer it to another friend or you could transfer it to your bank. So um, I don't think that, I, I think that most people, I think that 99% of the use of Apple Pay cash will be just transferring money to friends. But I guess if you really wanted to transfer money from your bank to an Apple Pay cash card and, and spend money that way, you could do that as well. Um, 
It is done through uh, Green Dot Bank, which is partnered with Discover Network. So what I'm curious about is Discover um, tends to be not as widely accepted as the likes of Visa, MasterCard, American Express. Um, but it's it's used as a debit. It's Discover Debit. So I don't know if any of these places exist, but if any listeners um, experience this, I would be curious to find out. Um, if there is a place that accepts Apple Pay but does not accept Discover, I would be curious if you can use your Apple Pay cash card there because Discover is doing the rails for it. Now, I know that we internally had uh, over at the um, Apple Insider Cabal mm-hmm. headquarters – with a huge discussion around credit cards and fees and cash back and right. all of that. Because this is a Discover debit card, that, that discussion was one of the things that we were getting into, but was kind of off off track from Apple yeah. Pay Cash. Okay. Yeah, Discover debit is done through Pulse, which is pretty widely accepted. So my assumption is that um, even if a place doesn't take Discover credit, they probably take Pulse, a.k.a. Discover Debit, which means they probably take Apple Pay Cash. And you would probably be very hard-pressed to find a place that does not accept both Apple Pay Cash and Discover, let alone Discover Debit. So I don't think anyone practically will run into this situation. But I'm curious because you do run into places where Discover is not accepted. So um, I would be curious to find out if, if anybody runs into that problem. So if you have an experience, let us know. You can tweet at me or, or email us or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Now, let me let me ask you this, because I see it here that it's using the Discover debit. Is it possible to tell it to use something else, like no. a different debit card? No. no. You could okay. just use your own debit card, though. Which you'd set up through Apple Pay and use. Well, when you transfer money, you get to choose. So what happens is you open the Messages app, then you open uh, Apple Pay Cash through the Messages app drawer at the bottom, and then you choose the right. amount that you want to send. And then you hit the send button. And then mm-hmm. once you hit send, you have to authorize the Apple Pay transaction. So if you're on an iPhone X, for example, you choose the the card in your wallet that you want to send the money from. You then double press the side button, and then it scans your face with Face ID. Um, I assume that if you're using an older phone, you just use Touch ID, same thing. But you have to, much like before you do an Apple Pay transaction on your phone, you have to choose the if, if you're doing like an in-app purchase or, or uh, if, if um, uh, using your Mac or something like that, you have, to, you, you have the option to choose the card. And so any card that is in your Apple wallet, you can choose for the transfer. And this does not require it to be on the Apple Pay cash card. It can just be from any card. So they encourage you to use a debit card because there's no fee with a debit transfer. But if you right. use credit, then you got to pay a 3%. So there, there's really... There's two separate things here. There's the Apple Pay cash card, which is this, the Discover debit that mm-hmm. lives in wallet. And then there's the messaging app that allows you to send money, but you can use any payment you've already got set up in wallet. Correct. Okay, mm-hmm. now I've got it right. That's that, that feels like an important distinction because they both look like Apple Pay cash, but they're they're separate. They're not necessarily that Apple Pay Cash discovered. Yeah, and, and it, it, it's it's good the way that it is because otherwise you would have to transfer your money to Apple Pay Cash card, then transfer it, uh, which would be stupid. Um, the recipient will get it on their Apple Pay Cash card, and then they have to go in and, and transfer it to their bank. But that's transfer not that's bank. not any different from Square Cash or Venmo or any of those other services. So, right. Cool. Mm-hmm. Thanks for going over that with me. Uh, this is just a quick note. This is a story that we ran about Apple's partner, Catcher, 
who are at work on a product line that seems to be hinting at an augmented reality headset. Uh, you know, they've they've confirmed plans for the product line, but they didn't provide any more details. They they did this uh, with Digitimes. Now, Apple is a longtime client of Catcher, and so the question here is. Is Catcher working on the augmented reality headset for Apple? Uh, also in this week's news, uh, Apple's partner Quanta signed a licensing deal where they're going to manufacture lenses for Lumos, which is an Israeli company. So it's, it's sort of like that, that may have nothing to do with Apple, except that Quanta is an Apple partner. And so there's sort of all of these things circling. And we have yet to see what's going to materialize, but I'm always interested in seeing where this stuff goes. You know, AR is very interesting to me. And it's come to that time again, where I want to tell you about a product that we've used here that's been really successful at the uh, the Apple Insider South headquarters, which is what I'm calling my office. Uh, Eero is a mesh Wi-Fi network system. And the reason why you'd want a mesh Wi-Fi network system is that the single router Wi-Fi model just doesn't work well for an increasingly high bandwidth world that you need to be able to distribute strong signal everywhere. You know, it used to be okay if you'd have your Wi-Fi router in one central location and it would distribute the signal and the edges of the network and the edges of your home might not get a strong signal. That's not okay. It's not all right. And so whatever your Wi-Fi needs, Eero has the power to seamlessly blanket your home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi. And you can do it via Ethernet, wireless, or any combination. You simply set it on a flat surface, you plug it into a wall outlet, and it expands coverage into any room. And with the addition of a third 5 gigahertz radio, the second-gen Eero is now tri-band, which means that it's twice as fast and lets customers do more in every room of their house simultaneously. The, uh, the reason why tri-band and having that third 5 gigahertz radio is important is because if you don't have it and you're using just one 2.4 gigahertz and one 5 gigahertz band, then you have to use it for both the traffic to and from your client devices and also the backhaul to the other mesh node points. So it effectively halves your bandwidth. By adding this third 5 gigahertz radio, they're making it a ton faster. You don't have to use the same radios that you're using for client devices to do the backhaul to the main mesh node. And, and with the addition of a thread radio, Eero can connect to low-power devices such as locks, doorbells, and other sensors that are part of the Google Thread network. Meanwhile, Eero Beacon is half the size. So Eero Beacon is a mesh node point, and it's even more powerful than the original Eero. Whichever model you choose, Eero's got incredible customer support you can call and get a hold of a Wi-Fi expert within 30 minutes. Now, as I said, we've been using it, and it's astounding just how good it really is. I mean, the there, there I, I have uh, a test home that I use. I have a friend's home that I use for uh, testing Wi-Fi because his house is a little bit larger than mine, and he has four areas of the home that are really, really abysmal for signal. One of them is right by his Apple TV, where his TV is mounted. So he gets absolutely no signal where his Apple TV is. And putting in Eero and putting in the Eero beacon node points has solved the dead spot at the TV. It solved the dead spot in the master bedroom. It solved the weak spots above the in the, the room above the garage. It's totally fixed all of the problems. And, you know, in, in years past, he'd been trying to use things like Wi-Fi extenders, which, as said, you know, they, they half your bandwidth. So faster speeds, better coverage, Eero. 
For free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada, visit Eero.com, that's E-E-R-O.com, and select Overnight as the shipping option, and enter Crunchy at checkout. That's Eero.com, offer code Crunchy at checkout. Speaking of TV and Apple TV, uh, I just recommended to my friend with the slightly larger house and the bad Wi-Fi that's now fixed to download the Amazon Prime Video app to his Apple TVs. Uh, he, you know, he's a big Amazon Prime Video watcher. They, they are at that house. They use Hulu and they use uh, Sony's PS View uh, streaming service and Prime Video. And so they have one Apple TV, and they've been getting a Amazon Fire Stick or the the 4K Amazon dongle. Yeah, if you and use the if you use the service, the Video uh, app, it's exciting. Apple TVs. There's such an abundance of content out there that I've never even bothered to check out anything on Amazon Prime Video. Now that it's on the Apple TV, I might be more inclined to check it out. But yeah, pre- previously people would have to get the Prime Video app on their phone and then airplay it to their TV. So this kind of removes that, helps in discovery, makes it a little easier. But not only that, it goes above and beyond. It integrates into Apple's TV app. So you can more easily find content. It can recommend stuff that you, based on what you've watched before. You can search through Siri. Um, so pretty cool. Um a lot of people were questioning whether this was going to come out this year. It was announced to come out this year, and then Amazon was mum. There's a there's a lot of background and drama here where it and we talked about this in the podcast a little last week. But basically, um, Apple and Amazon don't really see eye to eye because Amazon has not had a lot of success in hardware, and TV is one of those areas where they have had success. So they have a little bit of leverage over Apple, so they try to. Uh, use that leverage, so to speak. So there were some conspiracy theories that this app may not launch this year. Uh, it did, which is cool. Um, it Unfortunately, it, it supports 4K and HDR, but doesn't support 5.1 sound. Um, it only comes out in stereo for some reason, and I, I'm assuming that's a bug, but that has also led to conspiracy theories about uh, Amazon purposefully hamstringing the app because you can get 5.1 sound on your Roku, on your Fire TV stick, and all that stuff. So um, a- a- Apple TV supports 7.1 sound, by the way, uh, which, if you're not familiar, is seven channels of sound and one subwoofer. Uh, so a little bit more than the left and right stereo. Right, so that's six left and right, right and a so center channel. Most content in the, the front standard for dialogue you know, since and the Empire Strikes Back came out, yeah. you know, in '82 or whatever it was. Uh, the the standard has been 5.1, um, and there is if you get a Blu-ray or whatever, it goes beyond that. Some do like 8.2 sound or something like that, but 5.1 is pretty. 5.1 is pretty much the the bare minimum that you would expect from HD content. 9.2. And the fact that they do 4K video without 5.1 uh, is a little odd, so presumably just a bug, hopefully fixed, maybe even by the time you hear this. Yeah. One of the interesting things right. about this launch is that this app is not just for the 4th and 5th gen Apple TVs. Yeah, Apple still supports supporting that the product. Third generation I think they realize that... Uh, it's kind of wild. Not people probably not in a rush to update. It works just fine. So why update? Um, and Amazon probably realizes that as well. So it's good to see Apple allowing developers to support it. Right now, it's not without bugs. Uh, there was content that appeared on the third gen one last night that my kids were looking at. They would try and play, mm-hmm. and it would say "service requires subscription to dollar sign name" in all uppercase. And we have a Prime subscription, and it was appearing on the device, so it should have been available, but it it wasn't, and it was buggy. 
the device, the, the app on the, the fourth gen and the 4K Apple TVs is similarly a little bit different and a little bit buggy. But I, I for the most part, I'm honestly just glad it's there. <laughs> I, I'm glad that it was released. The, there, there's been some conjecture about what this thing was written in or, or what's going on, because it can't be a web view unless Apple has done something special as an entitlement just for Amazon. But it doesn't react the same way that other Apple TV apps work. When you when you uh, scroll over different items, uh, classically on other Apple TV apps, the TV makes a sound that confirms that you've scrolled over, a subtle little sound as you mouse over items. And that's not present in the Amazon app. Uh, when you've got the toolbar across the top, the menu bar that says so search home, originals, movies, TV, things like that, uh, classically when you swipe over those items, it automatically shifts for you. And on the Amazon one, I've noticed that you've had to click to select those as the item. So there are a little bit of, of sort of unusual things that don't quite fit in with TVOS or within the uh, third gen Apple TV. I'm glad it's there. It, it, I don't, I probably won't be using it. I, I haven't even finished the latest season of stranger things. So, you know, one thing at a time, but I'm, I'm glad it's there and it's, it's good and more content, you know, and more options are good. So, you know, if nothing else in, in, uh, by the time this podcast releases, actually, Friday, the Grand Tour is coming back. So one, one who if you haven't given the Grand Tour a watch, if you a, happen uh, to like three old gentlemen talking about cars <laughs> and being crass, assaulted a crew member, yes, yeah. I'm sure he's delightful. Over a undercooked or cold steak, it was something like that. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's pre- <laughs> <sighs> you don't watch the show because he's delightful. That's not the attraction to the show. <laughs> the The attraction to the show is to see three old gentlemen acting relatively badly and crassly in cars. But anyway, there you go. they're premiering. It's one of Amazon's prime originals now because they bought it from the BBC. They bought the talent from the BBC. So there you go. Coming out Friday. Um, not, not usually. Now, we don't often talk about books on this program, do we? No. You know, the only occasions we've talked about books have been when they're ebooks or iBooks, for that matter. But I have occasion to talk to you about a book by James Rollins. Uh, this book is new; it's coming out. It's called *The Demon Crown*, and it's published by William Morrow. the The premise here is that to save mankind's future, the members of Sigma Force must make a devil's bargain as they join forces with their most hated enemy to stop an ancient threat. It's set off the coast of Brazil. A team of scientists discover a horror like no other, an island where all life has been eradicated and possessed by a species beyond imagination. And they have to join forces with their most hated enemy, even if it means sacrificing one of their own. So there's there's a whole book series written by James Rollins about this, this Sigma Force. And this is the latest novel in the series. It's the mix of science, history, and high-concept adventure. Uh, Publishers Weekly calls it bone-chilling. And if you want to go ahead and get started with videos, audio, and more, go to jamesrollins.com. That's J-A-M-E-S-R-O-L-L-I-N-S.com. I think we kind of ran the gamut this week. Neil, what else would you like to talk about? I think we have. You know, the only things that I've been thinking about lately are just uh, Honor. Huawei's uh, more affordable mm-hmm. brand is introducing a phone that has iPhone 10-style emoji to Android. And we ran a small piece on that. Mm-hmm. And the, the yep. other thing that I was looking at was Honeywell Lyric adding a home security update that brings HomeKit to their home security product. Um, mm-hmm. 
I know you've messed about with HomeBridge, and I have too now. I've I've gone ahead and used HomeBridge to turn on the yeah, SwitchMate light switches, and I haven't really given any thought to home security yeah. yet. So the Honeywell Lyric product looks interesting <laughs> to me. Well, there we have it. We've talked about an awful lot this week. This has been productive. Yeah. Well, you know, if if you out there listening have enjoyed this week as much as I have, I would really appreciate it if you would go ahead and and give us good reviews on iTunes. And feel free to check out our YouTube channel. We have a number of videos there, especially the ones that I'll put in the show notes about Apple Pay Cash and uh, and things like that. We're we're so we're really working hard to try and bring you the very best of the information that we can in a really approachable way. And if you enjoy it, feel free to tell us. Uh, Neil, where can people find you to tell you? You can find me on Twitter at this is Neil N E I L, and you can read my stuff on AppleInsider.com. And I'm at VMarks on Twitter, and I also write for AppleInsider.com. And like I say, feel free to let us know just what you think about it. Thank you so much. This has been episode 150. Hey, we will see you back next week.